I'd like for you to turn to the 18th chapter of the book of Luke. And I want to read verses 9 through 14. And he also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a publican, a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer, this publican. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. I think we have a very rigid opinion about these two men. We see the Pharisee as this revolting hypocrite, this uh, farce, this uh, arrogant and proud man. And we see the publican as this good, honest man, a sinner to be sure, but at least an honest one, not a hypocrite. Um, well, really, it wasn't like that at all. For the Pharisee was a genuinely good man. And anyone who reads the New Testament discovers that the Pharisee was as, sin as serious as Jesus in seeking the will of God. He would never be employed by the Roman government who occupied his land, for his allegiance was to God alone. He practiced what he believed. He rejected extortion, injustice, and adultery. He tithed 10% of all that he earned. And he practiced the ancient discipline of fasting to keep a distance between himself and things in order that he might not become a mindless consumer. Frankly, truthfully, he was better than most folks, just as he thought. The publican, on the other hand, was not a good man at all. This guy filled his pockets at the expense of others. As a matter of fact, put it bluntly, the publican was a crook. It's amazing how we get these roles reversed in our mind. And we've kind of glorified this publican and made him a folk hero and exalted him because at least he is an honest person. You know. How many of you have heard people uh, utter what Tilicki, the German theologian, put on the lips of the publican to say? He has this publican say, well, I'm a sinner to be sure, but at least I'm an honest one, not like those hypocrites that meet down at the church and put on their pious fronts. Thank God I'm better than they are. I commit fornication twice a week, 
Only 10% of what I have I earned honestly. But at least I don't go down and put on a front like those sniveling hypocrites that meet at the church. Until he goes on to say, now who's proud? Now who's boasting? It seems to me, he said, that much of the criticism of the church in these days has something of this in it. That they're hypocrites, the church is a sham, but at least we are not, we are honest sinners, and God is on the side of a good old fashioned sinner. Well, whatever else we think Jesus meant by this, he did not mean that the publican was better than the Pharisee. And he does not justify a publican just because he's a publican, or a Pharisee because he's a Pharisee. For the hero of this story is neither the Pharisee nor the publican. The hero of this story is God Himself. And that's the key to the whole business. Because Jesus allows us to listen in on a personal private prayer of two men. And as we listen in on their private and personal prayer, just like every other prayer, we learn what these men think about God. And that's the point of this parable. And every parable has a point. For the issue of all worship is depends on how much God there is in it. Now you have come this morning to worship. doesn't matter if you can better identify with the Pharisee or the publican. The fact is that what happens in this place this morning depends on how much of God there is in your worship. Which leads me to say three things. First of all, when God is present, there's no room for anybody else. Now when this man looked away from God, he began to measure himself by others. And he looked around the temple and he saw this tax gatherer and immediately he was boasting about how good he was. The point is that he was right. Everything he said was right. Wasn't anything wrong with what he said. He was right by every conceivable measurement of comparison, especially the religious one. He was absolutely correct. The problem is, is that when one is in the presence of God, he has no vision of the faults and the failures of others. Because the faults and the failures of others does not become the measurement by which we judge ourselves. That measurement is God alone. And so when he looked away from, from God, he began to measure himself by others, and he began to be filled with arrogant pride. Now, we have exalted pride. We have made it a valid and desirable pursuit. We sell it, say to our kids, don't you have any pride when they don't clean their rooms? Now, self, I remind you that, that in the Bible there are six things that God despises and pride heads the list. Self-respect is right, but false pride is diabolical and it leads to self-worship. Savonarola, the 15th century Florentine preacher, watched every day as a woman came and knelt at the statue of Virgin Mary. Every day she came, day after day after day. 
And one day he heard in adoration of this woman, in respect of her, he whispered to one of his fellow priests, look at that woman, devout woman, worshiping at the, at the uh, statue of the virgin. And the priest said, don't be deceived. For when the artist sought someone to, to be a model for the statue, he looked all over the countryside, and in our village he found a beautiful young maiden with serene beauty and a mystical look in her eyes. And that woman who kneels at the statue and the young maiden, he chose to be the model of it, are one and the same. Pride leads to self-worship. It is a barrier to salvation. It breaks relationship. It destroys relationships. How many relationships are broken today simply because of pride? We're not able to say, I was wrong, I'm sorry. And how many people live miserable lives simply because they won't get help? They're too proud to do it. And a man saw a little girl with a large cone of cotton candy. And he said, how is a little girl that your size, how a little girl like you going to eat all that cotton candy? And she said, well, I'm a lot bigger on the inside than I am on the outside. Pride swells us up on the outside while it shrinks us on the inside and leads to self-absorption. The publican, on the other hand, was different. The scripture says he stood afar off. Maybe he was so full of God that no sooner that he entered the temple that he started to seek him and he saw no one else there. He didn't say, I'm better than this man or I'm worse. Because when a man encounters God in a moment before him, when you encounter God in worship, there is only two people there, you and God, me and God. When God is present, there's no room for anybody. When God is present, there is no mistake about sin. There's a story about a man who came home as oft he did, drunk. And his wife met him at the door. She said, you know, she helped him undress and get in bed and tucked him in and said, would you like for me to pray? He said, yes. So she knelt beside his bed and whispered, Lord, here lies my husband drunk. And he gruffly protested, don't tell him I'm drunk, tell him I'm sick. Now, there's, a, there's a kind of a perverted humor in that story. But the story represents the pride that keeps us from acknowledging our deplorable condition. And when a person no longer judges himself by others or measures himself by others and humbles himself before Almighty God, there is no mistake about it. We have missed the mark. And so this person looking at the, Pharisee, at the publican, this Pharisee, he began to recite his virtues. I tithe half a tenth of what I earn. I fast twice a week, much more than is expected. And all of a sudden his prayer becomes a vain autobiography. All of a sudden his prayer becomes a soliloquy. He is not acknowledging God, he's rehearsing self. And the truth is, everything he said was right, correct, 
There wasn't an element of dishonesty in any of it. The unpardonable thing about it is, is that anybody could stand in the presence of God and call up his good works at all. I've got a little mirror in my restroom that is adjoining my office. Kind of a closet, little cubbyhole there. I could tell you some stats, not what we're... But I go in there sometime, and that little mirror there, it's kind of dark in there, but it's adequate, and I'll comb my hair and brush my teeth, look at myself in the mirror. When we, picked, when we fixed this new part of the building here, we fixed, we, we, we fixed a bride's room. You ever been in it? In this bride's room, there's this huge dressing mirror and a place to sit. And around this dressing mirror are huge lights, bright lights, Sit down there, look at yourself, and turn on the light. And all of a sudden, you see what you haven't been used to seeing. Blemishes, every blemish, every zit, every wrinkle, every mole is illuminated, is, is compounded. And what you want to do is say, turn off the light, I don't like what I see. And when a man comes into the holiness of God, into the white light of his presence, what he discovers, he doesn't like. What he discovers is the imperfections of his life. And we know how much of God was in the prayer of the Pharisee because of what he thought about himself. You don't come into God's presence and talk about how good you are. The publican, on the other hand, was different. In this moment before God, he said, Now, it's not, I am, God be merciful to me, a sinner. It's God be merciful to me, the sinner. With a definite article preceding the sinner. For in that moment before God, watch this, he saw himself as the alone sinner. He saw himself as the embodiment of sin. The 18th century Hassad, 18th century Hassads knew how terrifying it was to seek God. Ayuri every morning wept before he went to prayer. And he would call his family around him and he would talk to them like he would not see them again. He would weep. And this is what he said, When I go to prayer, I call on the Lord. And then I say, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And who knows what the power of God might do to me after I have invoked it, before I have begged for mercy. And there is a legend that says that the first American Indian who saw the Grand Canyon tied himself to a tree in terror. And when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, he cried, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And Job said, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee, and I abhor myself. And he put his hand over his mouth so he wouldn't speak again. And the publican came inside the temple and lifted up his eyes just enough to get a peek of God. And he screamed in terror and smote his breast and said, God be merciful to me, the embodiment of sin. For when God is present, there's no mistake about the fact 
that we have missed the mark. When God is present, grace is accepted. Now the Pharisee had received no grace because he didn't need any. And because he didn't need the grace of God, he didn't get any. I like the story of the man who was to report because of a traffic violation to the traffic court in Wichita, Kansas. It was a blizzard that day and they did not they notify him that they had they had counseled court, so he went and he was the only one there, so he just went ahead and had court. And he wrote a letter later on to explain what happened. I was scheduled to be in court February the 23rd at 12.15 p.m. concerning a traffic ticket. Well, I was there as scheduled, and to my surprise, I was the only one there. No one had told me that the court would be closed, so I decided to go ahead with the hearing as scheduled, which meant that I had to be the accuser, the accused, and the judge. Now, the citation was, going for, was for going 46 miles per hour in a 30-mile-per-hour zone. I had the speed alert on my car set for 44 miles per hour, and as the accuser, I felt that I was going over 35 miles per hour. But as the accused, I know that I was not going 46 miles per hour. And as the judge, and being the understanding man that I am, I decided to throw it out of court at this time, but it better never happen again. <laughs> now, you know, there's some people that don't need any mercy because they've excused themselves. True story. After the early service, this guy came to me. He said he, he used to be a, uh, an instructor of the highway patrol. He said that actually happened in a court in Oklahoma. He said the judge got picked up for drunk driving, and, and the justice of the peace for public intoxication. This guy was telling, he said, and he said, so the judge was the judge. And he asked the justice's peace. He said, how do you please? I plead guilty. He said, okay, your fine is $25. Then he said to himself, I plead innocent. And he rapped on his desk and said, case closed. So you got some cases where folks just excuse themselves. Now listen to me. I want to make a point that I think is so important to make, and, and I need you to listen carefully. Something that Martin Luther said ages ago, he said, this man didn't dwell on his sin. He didn't say over and over, I am a terrible sinner. That would lead to despair. He took the quantum leap, the leap of faith, and cried, have mercy on me, the sinner. And he prayed a prayer that was only possible if you believe in God. Now watch this. For sin and mercy do not belong together. They conflict. They're like fire and water. Where there is sin, mercy does not belong. Only punishment belongs. So says the Old Testament. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And so says every code of criminal conduct and behavior. Only could you pray this prayer if you knew God revealed in Christ. Because the gospel comes along and tells us, yes, you have sinned, but God is merciful and is ready to forgive. And that's what Paul exalted about when he said, where sin increased, grace abounded more. 
For this man stood in a circle, and it was him and God. And punishment and judgment was deserved. Only could he cry for mercy by understanding that this God who was there was a God who forgives. And so we put it in a song like this. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that is greater, grace that exceeds our sins and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all of our sin. Now what's going to happen in this moment of worship, this moment before God? It all depends on how much of God there is here. And if God is present, you are not conscious of anybody else but you and Him. And if God is present, you are profoundly aware of your sin. But if God is present, there is grace that enables you to leave forgiven and justified to your house. Let's pray together. Our Father, in this moment before God, may our sin be revealed and the grace greater than it be discovered. For I ask in Jesus' name for His sake. There are three invitations. I'd like to invite you right now to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. You're not a bad person, but you're not as good as God. And because you've missed the mark, you can't do anything about it for yourself. Your only hope is God's grace made available through His Son and your appropriation of that grace by faith. Reach out to Him today in faith and accept His free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. For by grace are we saved through faith. Maybe you need to step out today to come and, and do what others have done, that is, recognize the importance of a church membership and a commitment to its mission and purpose, and you feel God leading you to this. Or whatever God leads you to do this morning, my prayer is that when He calls your name, you will say yes. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.